Hello, welcome to The Word Diet on the Pure Radio Network. My name is Eric Schonsberg. My goal with this show is to help people read and understand the amazing Word of God. The show is named for my book project, The Word Diet, which is reading a chapter a day for a year from the Bible to understand the arc of the scriptures. The Word Diet is good for a devotional, but ideally it's done in groups or at least with partners. That way you get better accountability and richer discussion. And it's fine for seasoned Bible readers, but I'm aiming the project at novices and strugglers, those who have not yet gotten into the great Word of God. If this is you, get a few friends to join you and walk through the Word Diet. If this isn't you, I'll bet you have a few friends in that position, so get them together and work your way through the Word Diet. More information is available about the book project at thoroughlyequipped.org. For the radio show, we're in the book of Galatians, the book on the Christian's relationship to the Old Testament law and our struggles with legalism. My goal with the show is the same as the book, to encourage you to read and help you understand the Bible. So please read along with us before, during, and after listening to the show. Last week, I finished my introduction to Galatians, so provided an overview and the context, in particular that new Christians were having trouble with Judaizers, those who were teaching that adherence to the Old Testament law, circumcision, and the ritual purity laws of the Old Testament was essential for salvation and for sanctification. We also covered the key words and concepts in play here, grace and legalism, and discuss why there's so much at stake for them and for us in these concepts. So now we work our way through Galatians 1, starting with the introduction, verses 1 and 2. Paul, an apostle, sent not with a human commission or by human authority, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead, and all the brothers and sisters with me to the churches in Galatia. So this is a mostly traditional from to opening. Verse 2 at the end has the to part of it. It's to the churches in Galatia. And this is either before or after the Jerusalem Council. It either sets the table for the events of Acts 15 or is a continuing response to the events of Acts 15. Again, as I mentioned last week, if you don't know that chapter intimately, you need to go read it. It's one of the most important in the entire Bible and certainly crucial for understanding what's happening here in Galatians. Back to the from part, we go back to verse 1. It's from Paul. And for new readers of the scripture, it's strange to see a letter with the from at the beginning. We put ours at the end. Kind of makes sense if you think about it. Our current email does that. You always know who it's from. For them and for us, knowing the author of the letter helps us know him and it, the topics here, much better. It's a very personal letter in terms of both style and substance. Paul identifies himself as an apostle, which literally means one sent forth, a special messenger. This is language used by Jesus in Luke 6.13, and the office is defined further by Peter in Acts 1, verses 21 and 22, as the remaining disciples look to replace Judas. In their context, it meant to have been involved in Christ's ministry and to have been a witness to the resurrection. The term is used more generally in the scriptures to speak of those on a mission with authority from God and Christ in various places. And it's certainly as the term is used today, since there is no one around who is still involved in Christ's ministry directly or a direct witness to the resurrection. Paul here is claiming the capital A apostolic office. He does this in other places, and we see this from his story. Three times his conversion is relayed in Acts 9, most directly. Uh, His commission is received from God. Verse 1 here in Galatians, the same language is used and reiterated that it's not from men nor by men, but by Christ and God. So his authority is divine in origin. It's not coming from parental influence or rabbinical education. 
And this is a forceful expansion not used in any of his other letters. We'll see the same thing with the word grace in verse 3. As David Dockery puts it, these are loaded words in that situation. We can infer from how this letter is different what is at stake and what Paul is trying to do. His introduction to himself differs here because of the particular angle that he wants to pursue. The other reason for claiming apostolic authority is that he's comparing himself to his opponents and to his friends. He has authority over both his friends and those who are opposing him. Now, he's asserting it for now, but he will soon make the case that he actually has reason to make this claim. All of this anticipates the debate with the Judaizers and their claims about him and the gospel. Paul here immediately reasserts his authority, claiming what they had denied, And it's not out of pride, but because the gospel was at stake. Many times we defend ourselves in ways that are similar to this, but for very different reasons, right? For ego, to protect our turf and our reputation. But here, Paul is interested in protecting his reputation and his authority for the sake of the gospel. Big difference. Later in verse 1, he talks about him being raised from the dead. This is the key to Christian eternal and abundant life, Christ's resurrection, Why mention it here? Well, they think it's because of their works. That's what the Judaizers are promoting. And instead, Paul is already pointing them back to the sufficiency of Christ's work on the cross and through his resurrection. And finally, at the beginning of verse 2, he talks about living in community with many people, living out the faith with them. This accomplishes a number of things. First of all, it contrasts them with him. He is an apostle. They are not. It also contrasts again with the opponents who are not brothers and sisters in Christ, the group of Judaizers. But finally, it identifies with them in the family of Christ that he's happy to associate with them. Paul was not some sort of lone wolf. Eugene Peterson notes that this phrase bears on Paul's sense of freedom. Paul is free in the context of community. He's not a lonely, solitary, spiritual giant. He's not free from the failings and demands and troubles of others. He is free with them. He is one of them. All right, verses 3 through 5, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. So the greeting grace and peace is a common combination of popular Greek and Jewish greetings. The Greek is charis and the Jewish is shalom. But here it's even more important because it's the sum of the gospel message. It's the mechanism by which we have relationship with God and others, grace. And the result of it is peace with God, others, and ourselves. And again, in context, it's interesting that he has such a pleasant beginning to what's about to become a not fun topic. He's signaling his benevolent intentions here, that he wishes for them grace and peace, even though he's about to say some very difficult things. So Paul's usual greeting is grace and peace. He uses that here. The letter begins and ends with grace, by the way. But in contrast to his other greetings and other letters, he adds verses 4 and 5. Verse 4 says, he gave himself for our sins. So the verb gave signals that this is a voluntary act of Christ, in contrast to the duties of legalism that they were imagining within their sanctification. It's for our sins. And so Christ's substitutionary sufficiency is in contrast to the works-based salvation they were imagining with respect to justification in Christ. It's by Christ's sufficient sacrifice that we come into relationship with God. Verse 4 continues with rescuing and saving us from the present evil age. In other words, we are helpless and lost, nothing to be proud about. We're under attack. The emphasis here is on Jesus as a savior 
rather than a teacher. Again, this is an important reference because the Galatians were hearing false and impractical ascetic teachings and legalisms that were meant to rescue them from the present evil age. And Paul's going to argue, no, it's through Christ, it's through the Spirit. The other angle here is not as often in Galatians, but it's certainly there, the proper use of Christian freedom. And so this is a reminder to those people that, no, we still need to be saved from the present evil age. How we use our freedom, and particularly how we interact with the world, is still really important. Later in verse 4, it's all based on submission of Christ's will to the Father, as they should submit to truths revealed to Paul by Christ. And of course, all of this is by God's grace. It's not their works. It's not something that's earned. This is by God's grace that they have salvation, that they have a process of sanctification through the Spirit to pursue, and so on. So in verses 4 and 5, we've talked about what Paul added. Now let's talk about what's omitted in what one commentator called this strikingly brief salutation. In other words, Paul's going to get right to the point here in verse 6. Paul usually, in fact, in every other letter, engages in prayer, praise, or thanksgiving to God for his readers. And that's not what's going to happen here. Even in 1 Corinthians 1, 4 through 9, when Paul was about to rebuke them for their deep immorality, he still engages in prayer, praise, and thanksgiving for them. And this all emphasizes the serious nature of legalism within justification and sanctification. I think most of us would look at 1 Corinthians 1 and think that's the place where Paul's going to start banging on people. But in fact, it's legalism. And what a sobering reminder it is for those of us who are more conservative in our theology and have more uh, dangers and temptations with respect to legalism that Jesus and now Paul treat legalism in such a strong manner. Now, why is Paul so fired up? Well, there's a lot at stake here. It's trashing God's plan and his character. It's diminishing the blood and the cross of Christ. It's ruining lives. Jesus makes the same point in Mark 9, 42. And it's his past life. He knows. This is very personal for him. He's lived the life that he is now critiquing. So verses 1 through 5 is the glory of the true gospel. Now we turn verses 6 through 10 to the gravity of the false gospel. But before we do that, let's take a break. Please check out Proclaim from Pure Radio, Kentuckiana's Christian Community Bulletin, available online at pureradio.org and with free paper editions in store at 200 locations. Please spread the word about Pure Radio, this station, and this show. We'll be back in a minute. Welcome back to The Word Diet. Right now we're in Galatians 1. In the previous segment, we covered verses 1 through 5, which has Paul's introduction, which is interesting and noteworthy, both for what it includes, which is unique to Galatians, but also what it omits, which is also unique to Galatians, all of it points to the seriousness of what's at hand, as well as the details of his greeting, pointing to the particulars of the debate that's about to unfold. So with verses 6 and 7, he gets right to the point. He writes, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you by the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. Evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion and are trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. In verse 6, Paul opens by saying he's astonished. Going back to what's left out of the greeting in verses 4 and 5, Ronald Fung says, Paul can find no cause for thanksgiving to God, but can only express astonishment instead. Part of his concern and astonishment is at the speed of the problem. Verse 6 says, so quickly after their conversion, or the phrase can be translated so easily. Some have speculated that the Judaizers were following Paul's trail, coming after him and trying to clean up what they saw as messes that Paul was creating. 
Maybe that would explain the speed of the Galatians' fall. He's also upset at the type of problem that they're deserting the gospel. It's a military term implying being a traitor to it. Deserting the one who called you. This is both Paul and God. And I think that's interesting because Paul makes it very personal here. It's not about deserting the truth, although he'll talk about that as well. He's pointing, at least in the opening, to the relationship with them and Paul and God, rather than the teaching itself. John Stott says, We must not compromise the gospel like the Judaizers, nor desert it like the Galatians, but live by it ourselves and seek to make it known to others. Now, the good news in what Paul has written here is that the verb tenses imply continuity, which also means that it would be easier to recover from. This is not something that's past tense and done. It's something that's ongoing and can be fixed. Verse 6 and into verse 7, different phrases here. It's a different gospel. It's no gospel at all. And verse 7 concludes with perverting the gospel. Gospel is a phrase meaning the good news. It's used five times in chapter 1, verses 6 through 9, 12 times in total in Galatians, more than 60 times by Paul in total, only 14 uses in the Gospels. So this word euangelion, which is borrowed from Isaiah 40's phrase, good tidings, is something that's crucial to Paul. And it's defined here in verse 6 by the grace of Christ in contrast to the idea that the Judaizers were promoting that one must finish what Christ had started. Now, this is certainly the case with respect to justification. We're saved by grace, by faith, uh, through what Christ has done for us. It's not by our own works, lest we should boast. And so, becoming right with God in that initial salvation sense uh, comes through belief, faith, grace, etc. John 3.16, Romans 4 at the beginning is excellent here where Paul argues that if it were earned, then it'd be like wages. But instead, it's like grace because it can be only a gift. Galatians 2.21, Paul will write it this way, I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. Or putting it this way, if Christ's death isn't sufficient, that's not much of a plan or particularly good news. It's also true for sanctification. Once we've accepted Christ and entered into that relationship, justification then our ongoing relationship with Christ and God through the Spirit is also a matter of grace. And again, that's more good news for us. One verse earlier in Galatians 2, verse 20, Paul writes, I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. There are many verses on this. Maybe the most direct is John 15, 5. Christ says, I'm the vine, you're the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. I'm not sure I know what John 1, 16 means, but there it's written, out of his fullness, we all have received grace in place of grace already given. And I wonder if there's at least an application here that we have received grace through justification, but that grace that's already been given, has been superseded further by the grace of sanctification. It's Jesus Christ who's responsible for all justification and all sanctification. Thus, he gets the glory for that as well. In verse 7, he uses the word confusion and perversion. And it's a confusion because lies are better if they're deceptively dressed. That's what allows them to be confusing. A counterfeit has to be closed. Twisting the truth is harder to catch than denying it with outright lies. 
and legalism has that feature to it. It's also a perversion. The term here means to transform into something of an opposite character. And the Judaizers' gospel is, in fact, no gospel at all. The transformation is into something of a totally opposite character. This is not good news. It's bad news. And then verse 7 ends with that it was presented by some people, and this is a reference to the Judaizers that we've talked about earlier. So Paul blames the Galatians themselves in verse 6 and early in verse 7. Then he turns his attention to the false teachers here at the end of verse 7, and the next passage we'll read in verses 8 and 9. All of this is deeply personal for Paul. He had been there before. But he had never known any better. I think that's part of the frustration for him. He had been raised a certain way. He didn't know any better. These people knew better. They had been taught. And that's part of his frustration that they had gone the other direction, back the other direction, in fact. Eugene Peterson says, Paul at one time had believed the gospel contrary, the lie about God. He had a wrong idea of God. And from the basis of that wrong idea was launched on a career of imprisoning and killing the people who didn't share his wrong idea. He was the scourge of the church. So as you can imagine, whenever Paul sees people stumbling into these errors, he imagines the nightmares that they can create along the lines of the nightmares he had created for other people. The second reason this is deeply personal is that the Judaizers are messing with his spiritual children. He's worried about them, and he's upset at those who are trying to mess with them. All right, let's move on to verses 8 and 9. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one we preach to you, let that person be under God's curse. As we've already said, so now I say again, if anybody is preaching to you a gospel other than what you accepted, let that person be under God's curse. So twice here, he wishes for those who pervert the gospel to be eternally condemned and under God's curse. The Greek word here is anathema, to be damned, to consign to hell very strong language here, and it's twice. On top of that, he holds himself to the curse. Both of these are for emphasis. Colson and Dean describe the beautiful benediction in verses 3 through 5, and here we have the dreadful curse of verses 8 and 9. It's interesting to note the irony here, too, that some legalists misunderstand theology and end up trying to consign others to hell for wrong beliefs, and here Paul is reversing that, saying that their beliefs need to go to hell. Now, this is tough language for us. Eugene Peterson, I think, is helpful for us here in saying that cursing before it degenerated into mere profanity was noble religious speech. Curses express God's displeasure with the misuse of freedom and decree consequences that make the misuse unprofitable. Again, very strong language is not only appropriate, but actually required in this circumstance. Now, there are some phrases that color this a bit as well. Verse 8 is a hypothetical future, even if we or an angel from heaven. It doesn't matter the position. Even someone from heaven, even someone from heaven should be condemned if they insist on this heresy. Logically, Paul is relying on what's called a reductio ad absurdum, that this is ridiculous. Paul's obviously not going to claim this heresy, and an angel from heaven is obviously not going to claim this heresy. But even if that were the case, then it should be condemned. Verse 9 is the present application, speaking of anybody, but pointing to the Judaizers. In mentioning the angels and then talking about people, it's interesting that you have both supernatural and natural temptations, which were at the core of the original temptation back in Genesis 3. Now, he's surprised at them, and he's angry at the Judaizers. Again, why is Paul so emphatic about this? He had been there, and the stakes are so high. Hugh Halter writes, he's trying to help us keep the bad news out of the good news. 
God hates it when people call something good news when it's bad news. Paul doesn't want the gospel being disguised in religious legalism, empty ritual, or personal judgment, which, by the way, are the three things most non-Christian people think our gospel is all about. Like Paul, we need to think and talk about legalism in very strong terms. Okay, now having described this in verses 6 and 7 as no gospel at all, and verses 8 and 9 in even stronger terms as anathema, that which should be under God's curse, Paul turns to the question of motives in verse 10. Am I now trying to win human approval or God's approval, or am I trying to please people? If I were still trying to please people, I would not be a servant of Christ. So the specific question here is, are we seeking the approval of men or of God? Are we looking to please men? Again, this is something emphasized through repetition. It's twice in the same verse. And so the question then and now is, who we're trying to please? Do we have an audience of one, or are we trying to please other people to gain favor and or to avoid criticism? So this counters an apparent accusation by the Judaizers of compromise on Paul's part. We've seen him deal with this indirectly through verses 1 through 9. The style and the substance of the letter so far are not exactly what one would call wishy-washy. He's been very direct, confrontational, used very strong language. Not exactly the sort of thing that lends itself to compromise. Is Paul pleasing the Gentiles? In fact, Paul is reversing the question here and implying that pleasing men would have been following the status quo, adhering to the ceremonial law as the Judaizers were doing. So the irony here is that Paul is not only not guilty of this accusation, but it's in fact the Judaizers who are more likely to be having trouble with this accusation. One thing to say in passing is that I've quit being surprised at how often people are guilty at the things they accuse us of. More broadly, the application here I think that's more important is that this determines whether one can be an effective servant of Christ, as Paul talks about at the end of verse 10. Jesus talks about being slaves to two masters in Matthew 6, 24. Paul talks about in Romans 6 being a slave of righteousness or being in bondage to the world. And that's a version of what we're talking about here. We see bad examples of people pleasing in the New Testament as well. King Herod, Pontius Pilate. We're about to see Paul confront Peter in Galatians 2. Why do we people please? Well, fear, apathy, tradition, lacking confidence in the face of a bully, not willing to be countercultural. There are good reasons not to be a people pleaser. People are fickle. Most people really don't care. If you knew, you'd probably be disappointed to learn how little people actually think of you. The most respected people often disregard public opinion, see Jesus and Paul as notable examples, and really only God's opinion matters. Whose favor do we seek? Why would it be anyone other than our good and gracious God? I read a quote once from Serena Williams on people booing her, and she said, It's been happening all my life, but my dad was in the stands rooting for me, and I wanted to please him. One of the interesting, important, and ironic applications of this is, do we speak out strongly and with equal authority against both immorality and legalism in the church and in the world? Our greater emphasis should be within the church. We know that from 1 Corinthians 5, and here from Galatians, we know that Legalism should be dealt with in as strong a terms as immorality, and I'm not sure that's always the case for us. John Stott says, But I venture to say that if we cared more for the glory of Christ and for the good of the souls of men, we too would not be able to bear the corruption of the gospel of grace. And that's both through corruption of conduct and the abuse of freedom and through the heresy of legalism 
and its perversion of the gospel of grace. As we love and disciple the people around us, may we be as interested in legalism as we are in immorality. Lord, may it be increasingly so. It's been good to be with you today. We hope you'll join us next time on The Word Diet. Right now we're in the second half of Galatians 1. We've covered the first half already, the opening, including the greeting from Paul, which includes both things that are not usually said by Paul and omitting things that he usually does say. And we talked about why all of that was relevant to the particular context of this letter to the Galatian church. Verses 6 through 9 was the false gospel, and then verse 10 got to the question of motives. That takes us to the autobiographical portion of the letter, which is in the second half of Galatians 1. We'll start with verses 11 and 12. I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that the gospel I preach is not of human origin. I did not receive it from any human source, nor was I taught it. Rather, I received it by revelation from Jesus Christ. So, two key thoughts here. Verse 11, it's not something that man made up. In particular, a works-based religion is what the Judaizers had constructed, and in fact, what men always construct. If you're going to make up a religion, it always involves what we need to do. It holds considerable logic for many people, and it certainly allows people to maintain power over others, but that's not the kingdom of God. That's not God's grace and the gospel of Jesus Christ, which is by grace. So it's a works-based religion. It's something they had made up. It's not something that Paul has made up. In fact, the Bible broadly is not something that man would make up. There are very difficult topics in it. For example, predestination versus free will. There are four gospels. Why not just stay with one? And its heroes are highly imperfect. Think about Abraham or Jonah. Christ is on the cross, not exactly exercising earthly power. And it's simply too complex given its amazing connections and intricacies. One of the things that empowers my faith is just seeing the beauty and the amazing detail in the scriptures. Man couldn't have done this by himself. Another example is how G.K. Chesterton came to faith, and it's through the paradoxes of the faith, the last shall be first, and so on. Chesterton notes that many theories, worldviews, can explain the easy things, but he argued that only Christianity explained the difficult things that are real in the world around us. Verse 12 is that it was not taught by men, but instead revealed by Christ. Back to chapter 1, verse 1, and this is Paul's thesis in this section. First, he's taking a poke at the traditions that the Judaizers are following, which were obviously the traditions of men. We'll see that again in verse 14. Again, it provides more evidence for his apostleship. And it also explains why Paul's writings are so good and so prominent in the New Testament. Yes, they're God-breathed, 2 Timothy 3.16, but they also come through human hands and minds. They are both God's provision and our participation, or in this case, the participation of Paul. Because it was revealed to him by Christ, that's a huge part of why Paul's writings are so impressive. That takes us to verses 13 and 14. For you have heard of my previous way of life in Judaism, how intensely I persecuted the church of God and tried to destroy it. I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people and was extremely zealous for the traditions of my father's. A number of interesting phrases here. Let's start with extremely zealous in verse 14. Of course, we see evidence of this in Acts 8.3 and then in, in Paul's own testimony in Acts 9 and Acts 26, even to the point of what he describes in verse 13 as intensely persecuting the church. 
Among other things, it's interesting to note how this came in handy later, how God redeemed this in Paul's life. First of all, he can identify with the Galatians. He has empathy for them. Some people come from more carnal backgrounds, and for them, empathy with those who abuse freedom is easier. For Paul, it's the other way around. His problems were on the side of legalism, and so he understands and empathizes with them, and he has heightened credibility. Often it's difficult to witness to a legalist, especially for those who tend to abuse or be loose with grace. Only someone who is righteous along the lines that is respected by a legalist is going to get their attention. So Paul is effective in that regard. He has lived that sort of life. He's been there and done that. And so he can speak to their situation and be perceived as credible on these things. Of course, for Paul later, that same zeal and commitment was used to glorify God. The word for persecuted here in verse 13 is the Greek word dioko, which is the same as what he'll use in Philippians 3.13 to talk about pressing on to win the prize. And so zeal is really important. Apathy just sits there on the couch, but zeal does something. It has to be zeal using the proper methods, but apathy God can hardly work with at all. Think of Jacob and Esau. Esau is a good dude. Uh, It's a guy you'd want to babysit your kids compared to Jacob, who's a hot mess. But at least Jacob cares about the things of God. Esau is willing to trade them in for a bowl of soup. And what can you do with that sort of apathy? The other thing for Paul is that because of his background, he has amazing gratitude and humility. And he's, of course, a show of God's immense grace. 1 Timothy 1, 13 through 16 is terrific here. Paul is a serial killer of Christians who has been transformed. Paul's conversion, both in frequency and in volume, is the third most covered event in the New Testament. His transformation and the disciples is the third most important event in New Testament to defend Christianity behind the death and resurrection of Jesus himself. How can one argue with the changed lives of the disciples and Paul? What other explanation could one give for understanding how he made this amazing switch? Verse 14 also uses the interesting word advancing, and here one thinks, at least in contemporary terms, of moving up the business world's corporate ladder. Here, he was in Gamaliel's school of theology. Here's how Paul describes it in Philippians 3, verses 4 through 6. If someone else thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law of Pharisee, As for zeal, persecuting the church, as for righteousness, based on the law, faultless. One has to give Paul credit. He studied hard, he persecuted hard, but he was advancing in the wrong things and for selfish reasons. Note that when he's describing this earlier phase in his life, that the words I and my are used five times in this passage. It's ultimately for selfish reasons, selfish motivations that he was pursuing this path. The last word I want to key on here is, in verse 14, the word traditions, and how Paul had defined spirituality and service back then. From verse 12, that's how he defined it, but now he defines it differently in light of the revelation he's received from Jesus Christ. And note also that traditions can be in concert with, but often can oppose God's word, God's revelation, and that's what Paul is talking about here. So there's nothing inherently wrong with a tradition, but be a Berean, Acts 17, 11, test them against the word of God. We learn by tradition, experience, and revelation. So tradition should neither be discounted 
nor worshipped. Of course, this begs some questions. When does tradition become legalism? And there we have to look deeper at motives, outcomes, when we require it of others, and so on. The punchline of verses 13 and 14 in terms of Paul's larger argument is that he did not figure this out on his own. It was all by God's grace and revelation. As Tim Keller puts it, Paul was deeply religious, but he needed the gospel. Paul was deeply flawed, yet he could be reached with the gospel. Okay, let's move on to verses 15 and 16. But when God, who set me apart from birth and called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I might preach him among the Gentiles, my immediate response was not to consult any human being. So look at the opening of these two verses, but God. The but indicates we're going a different direction, and whereas the subject of interest in verses 13 and 14 was Paul and his use of I and my Now the subject becomes God and his grace and his method of revelation to Paul, not man, but God. Early in verse 15, Paul says that he was set apart from birth. And so this is in a general sense. All of us have been set apart from birth. All of us are chosen. All of us are predestined even as we choose. And it's also the case that with Paul, there are specific tasks in mind of great interest to the Galatians, to the ministry of the Gentiles, and so on. But all of us are called to specific tasks. Ephesians 2.10, we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. And that's not just Paul, that's all of us. Later in verse 15, called me by his grace, a great picture of both predestination and free will. Here, God sought out Paul. Again, how else could one explain Paul's transformation from persecutor to preacher? Colson and Dean note that Paul had an extremely keen sense of his divine election and call. Verse 16 opens with a beautiful phrase, to reveal his son in me. G. Campbell Morgan says, a man who knows much about Christ can talk about him. A man who knows him can preach him. Paul knew Christ. Paul had been changed by God's grace. And because he knew him, because he knew God's grace, he could preach him. Now, your translation may have something else at the beginning of verse 16, a different prepositional phrase. In me can mean to me or through me. All of them are correct. They're all difficult to discern in the Greek. In fact, to me leads to through me and in me. And as we noted with Ephesians 2.10, we are saved to serve. We're not saved by good works, Ephesians 2.8.9, but we are saved to do good works, Ephesians 2.10. For Paul specifically, his mission is later in verse 16 to preach him, not the gospel, but to preach Christ among the Gentiles, the nations, the peoples, in particular foreigners, pagans, and non-Jews. That was the commission that Paul had received. John MacArthur says, Saul, the single-minded Pharisee, had become Paul, the single-minded apostle. And then later in verse 16, he did not consult any man, literally flesh and blood here, which is often used to denote human weakness and ignorance. And so Paul's talking a bit of trash here. Again, the punchline for the larger argument is that Paul did not pursue authority or instruction from the apostles. His mission and message were from God, not man. It's not an invention of his or unlike his opponents, the tradition of others, but instead the revelation of God. All right, it's time to take a break. If you're on Facebook, like Purity, unfriend me there. Questions and comments are welcome on my Facebook. Previous episodes are available through podcast on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, and so on. We'll be back in a minute. Welcome back to The Word Diet. We're coming to the end of our coverage of Galatians 1. And in the previous segments, we've covered the greeting that opens all of Paul's letters 
including things that were left out and specially included for his audience, the false gospel in verses 6 through 9, and then his coverage of motives in verse 10. Then in the last segment, we started into verse 11 and following the autobiographical section. He's not just telling his story here, but making his claims for his authority, his divine authority, and the purity of the gospel that he's sharing in contrast to his opponents, the Judaizers. So we've reached verses 17 through 20. I did not go up to Jerusalem to see those who were apostles before I was, but I went into Arabia. Later, I returned to Damascus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to get acquainted with Cephas and stayed with him 15 days. I saw none of the other apostles, only James, the Lord's brother. I assure you before God that what I am writing to you is no lie. So it's interesting to note that at the end, he takes an oath. And so he adds that in. A lot of times we talk about we don't need oaths, but maybe there's times to take them. Paul models that for us here. Jesus said, let your yes be yes and your no be no. But Paul feels it's important to back it up with an oath in verse 20. In this passage, he's continuing the idea that he did not get his gospel from other people. It comes as a divine revelation. So let's look at the details of that case as it unfolds here. Verse 17, it didn't come from Jerusalem. So let's look at the details of the case as it unfolds here. So he starts with verse 17, that he did not go to Jerusalem. That would have been the most natural or obvious thing to do especially interesting in light of his later push and passion for Christian unity between the Jews and the Jewish Christians in Jerusalem and those elsewhere. But here it's important for him to make the case that his gospel is independent of those influences in Jerusalem. Now, verse 18, he does take an eventual trip to Jerusalem, visiting with Peter. The phrase here is to get acquainted with, and the Greek word here is historia, which is where we get the word history. Eugene Peterson says that they swapped stories. Peterson says about this, Peter and Paul became partners instead of rivals. Paul had become a Christian in a very different way from Peter. Peter had been a rough, profane, ungodly person. Paul, a sophisticated, urbane, pious person. Peter had been converted from a life of sin. Paul, from a life of religion. Peter had been converted in a process of long and intense personal association with Jesus, with whom he ate, talked, and worked. Paul never spent time with Jesus in person, having only a brief vision of him along the Damascus Road. Peter had immediate confirmation of the authenticity of his experience by being installed as the leader of the Christian community. Paul had to live for years with the reputation of being a sadistic killer of Christians. There is no model conversion. There is no prescribed ritual, whether emotional or liturgical. We're all different. God is the same and has the same salvation to work in us, but he creates an original story every time. We acquire an appreciation for and delight in the features of our own stories and the stories of our friends as we tell our Jesus stories to one another in the community of faith. And that's what Paul and Peter are doing here in verse 18. But back to the reason he's including it here, notice the detail that it was only for 15 days. So he had limited contact with Peter, not sufficient for him to have gotten his gospel from Peter And it's after three years, so it's a late contact with Peter, again, too late for it to be the foundation of what became Paul's message. Then in verse 19, we have the visit with James, Christ's brother and the leader of the church at Jerusalem. Again, this gives it a lot more credibility, what Paul is claiming here. And he did not meet with all 12, so there's not some sort of conspiracy here, and he didn't learn it from them. Again, all of this speaks to the details of it being an independent 
divinely inspired revelation from God, not the product of the work of men. So where did it come from? Well, earlier in verse 17, it says, but Arabia. Now, this is not Saudi Arabia, but an area then around modern-day Syria. And later, he went to Damascus, the city. In verse 18, it's identified for three years. So given the mission that he's got in verse 16, it's possible that he's preaching to Gentiles in Damascus. Verse 16, he later returns there. And Paul is called on the road to Damascus, and so it would be fitting for him to be preaching in Damascus there, giving his testimony post-conversion. It's likely that all of this connects to the passage in Acts 9 from verses 19 through 30. That includes Barnabas and his handling of Paul. And also verses 22 through 25 that Paul eventually had to leave probably leading to his time alone in Arabia, or at least relatively speaking, for those three years. The phrasing here certainly emphasizes the time in Arabia and that he was mostly alone or at least not in direct contact with the other key apostles. It is possible to read this as part of three different years, the way that the Jews read time, but if it was three entire years, then it's interesting that that would parallel the other apostles and the three years of tutelage they had received under Christ. So what do we do with this in terms of application? I think it's important to think through a couple of issues here. One is our need for independence, so to speak, in developing our own theology in contrast to tradition, what our parents give us, even what our church leaders have given us, and the need for us to deepen our relationship with God. Again, a journey that we undertake with others, but a journey that is also in part something we have to do on our own and something that is unique. Paul's journey is certainly quite unique, but all of us have a unique story to tell. All of us have a different theology, uh, at least at the margins, that we're going to develop, a different understanding of God based on our context, place, personality, and so on. So Paul models for us here the need for solitude, silence, and time in order to form this. It can be many short-term bursts of activity here, or it might be a few longer-term focused efforts in this regard. But either way, one has to get alone, one has to spend time trying to figure these things out in prayer, in community with other people, and in dependence on the Word and the Spirit. We need to listen for the voice of God, but that takes learning how to listen to the voice of God. Christ himself was alone often, and we know from 1 Kings that God often speaks in whispers, which requires that one focus intently on the speaker. A whisper inspires and implies intimacy and personal instructions, and what better way to reach that than time alone with God? A second feature here is the need for first-hand study rather than second-hand study or listening to the Word of God. It's important that we get into the Word on our own. It's certainly valuable to listen to others, but there's only so much you can get by relying on other people. The Bereans give us a great example of this in Acts 17.11, or think about the idea of getting a suntan from the moonlight. Indirect sunlight is not going to get the job done. So there's a place, a big place, for secondhand study, but firsthand study is to be preferred. When we look at the life of Paul in particular, his study of the Old Testament, remember that's all he would have, and then revelation by the Holy Spirit led to awesome analogies of the Old Testament stories to New Testament principles. One of the classic examples of this we'll see later in Galatians is his application of the Sarai and Hagar episode from the life of Abraham in Genesis 12 through 22. Where else do you get such things other than through a study and dependence on the Spirit and God's revelation? 
One of the frustrations of this three-year period, reading it figuratively, I think for people today is they want to be used right away. And there's a sense in which all of us can be used and doesn't require some special training or anything else. God can use us wherever we're at with whatever we have. It's our availability, not our abilities that are more in question. But during this three-year period of training, you're not going to be used the same way and in, in as powerful way as you will be later. Am I being used? And the answer is often not all that much, but you are getting prepared. And this would have been especially difficult for a man of action like Paul. This is especially important for adult converts in our day, both in terms of allowing enough time and in their dealing with personal experience, baggage, and guilt that needs to be resolved. On top of that, we need time to be seen as credible by others and to be seen and perceived as mature in addition to developing that maturity. On top of that, we need to gain both truth and grace, humility that goes with the zeal of the new believer. But it is three years, but only three. Don't put off involvement in ministry and evangelism. God can use you before the three years is up, and the three years implies a finite amount of time Uh, where the training should largely end, and the training from then on out comes from training other people, becoming a disciple maker, someone who makes disciples, who makes disciples. Think of the lives of heroes of the faith, Moses with his 80 years, Elijah's three years, David in waiting, John the Baptist, Noah, Joshua, Christ even spent 30 years before the three years of ministry. So there is a definite place for a finite amount of focused effort to become trained. Training never ends. Of course, ministry never ends. But the three-year period modeled here by Paul in his relationship with God is something that can be emulated. Okay, verses 21 through 24 to wrap up. Then I went to Syria and Cilicia. I was personally unknown to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only heard the report. The man who formerly persecuted us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy, and they praise God because of me. Verse 21, the references to Syria and Cilicia would include his hometown, Tarsus. In the context of the argument he's making here, he would have been unlikely to go there because of the apostles. They were not ready for any sort of Gentile mission, let alone to this particular place. And it's also a nice application that our first call is often to preach the gospel at home. Verse 22, no prior contact with with the Judean churches, so no influences there. Verse 22, churches that are in Christ, which could be redundant or a point of emphasis. Or maybe it's meant to be a contrast to those churches that had been influenced by Judaizers. Verse 23, they'd only heard the report. Again, a secondhand news of the tremendous change in his life. Only God could do that. And verse 24, they praise God because of me, not in spite of me. Again, additional credibility for Paul's testimony. They had seen the dramatic change in Paul's life. Again, this is important for his case and a nice application for us as well, that when people see This is a nice application to us as well when people can see Christ in us, particularly when we come to Christ later in life. And it also illustrates that dramatic change is possible. Are we surprised when God moves like it happened in Paul's life? So why should the Galatians listen to Paul? Well, verse 12, he'd received a message from Christ. Verses 13 and 14, his pre-conversion experience. Verses 15 and 16, his conversion experience. And then verses 18 and 19 provides confirmation by Peter and James. In a nutshell, he was an apostle before he met the other apostles, and he was accepted by the other apostles. In the next chapter, we'll read how he even rebuked Peter, the chief apostle, about, wait for it, legalism. 
So again, his independence allowed him to stand more easily in a case like this. And again, his gospel, so to speak, was independently established, not derived from men. Peterson notes that Paul's story has five elements that should relate to any Christian story. Their former life, God's revelation, solitary retreat for assimilation and reflection, sharing our stories, and the connection between faith and vocation. Lord, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for intervening in our stories. We pray that our stories would help other people come to relationship with you. We thank you for Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen. It's been good to be with you today. We hope you'll join us next time on The Word Diet.